Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the season 31 premiere of The Amazing Race. And now, here are the two people that always cross the road to get to the other side. Jessica Lee and Mike Bloom. Hello, Mike. Oh, um, I'm sorry, Jess. Uh, I tried to wolf down a nice Birkenstock just as a little bit of a pick-me-up before we got into the podcast. You sort of caught me mid-bite, so I, I do apologize about that. I have swallowed and I'm ready to digest a really fun premiere of The Amazing Race 31. It's finally well, here, Jess! Sure before we get started, did you eat all the way to the red line? Oh, boy. Well, I ate to the blue line. I, maybe that was a bit past. I might need to see a doctor after that, but... I try to follow as many uh, sandal-eating, traditional Japanese, quote-unquote, cringeworthy entertainment instructions as I can whenever I ingest my oh, footwear. That, that's good. That's good. We wouldn't want you misinterpreting any of the rules. No, definitely not, unless I uh, purposely penalize myself as a result of doing yeah, so. Yeah, I um, mean, you don't have any cramps or anything? We're all good to go? Yeah, we'll see. Again, we'll see how much of this Birkenstock goes through me, what I might be cramping up at the end. I might have to bring in a second just to stretch me out a bit and... Looks like vape on my leg. If I saw in a, in a quick hot shot, so yeah, suffice it to say, from all the illusions, we're making a very eventful premiere of the Amazing Race Reality Clash. Yeah, I would venture to say this was an excellent premiere, and I know that um, I notoriously am not a fan of premieres most of the time. I feel like it's too much information, and they really struggle to tell a coherent story when they have to follow twenty-two people. But I think. Dare I say, the fact that we've seen all these people before already made it much easier for us to get invested in their story. Completely agree. I think that the major problem that exists with premieres, and I'm not, I'm not as low on it as you may be. You might be at the bottom of the ramp, and I'm a bit further up that slippery slope, as it were. But I do see your point in that it's a thankless job that they do with the premiere, usually with trying to not only introduce 22 people to a completely new audience, but also try to build a cohesive storyline there as to how does one team do particularly well? How does one team do particularly poorly? And maybe we can throw in another few stories in there. They really were able to benefit from the fact, and this is sort of a, a boon to returning player seasons in general, that, hey, we know these people, at least those that have uh, studied up on watching all these reality shows know these people. So it's less about getting to know them personally and more about, okay, how's this personality going to suit the race and it does feel like we got a little bit of everybody there were a couple of purple people and we're not talking about the leotards that they were wearing uh that i'm sure we can definitely get into but you know you could quibble a bit with the tasks that they actually had to do but i would say from a dramatic and entertainment perspective i loved this i was high on this cast to begin with but in my opinion they have all delivered in so many ways already this is what happens when you bring naturally entertaining people on a TV show. It's weird to say, but like this is the result that we get as opposed to occasionally on the race proper when you have uh, a couple of those dud teams early Yeah, you on. know, Phil told us that he was skeptical, and Phil himself is skeptical, but he also told us to stick with it and it would pay dividends. And honestly, I was surprised by almost nothing this episode, and there was something really, really comforting about that. Interesting. How do you how do you mean? I feel like people that I thought were going to be good at the show were very good at the show. People I thought would struggle struggled. People I thought would fail failed. And 
I, you know, I assumed there would be good storytellers and those people generally were good storytellers. I assumed there'd be a little bit of good natured trash talking and we got that. And I think we're going to be surprised in good ways going forward. But for right now, it's like this was everything I expected and wanted out of the premiere. It's it's an interesting point because, I mean, we'll certainly get to it down the line. I know we're going to answer a lot of your listeners' fabulous questions out there from this premiere, but I know there have been a couple of questions along the lines of, hey, with one pretty big exception, all the amazing race teams, you know, finished in the top. And we had all assumed as much that I think you get the benefit from experience here. It's not exactly a fans versus favorites type of format, but especially as of late in the reality TV sphere, there's been a lot of talk as to when you have people who have gone around the block a couple times in a taxi or in a plane versus people that just stepped onto the street, one's going to naturally have an advantage over the other. So it's not to say that the results were particularly surprising. I will say I think the elimination itself surprised me a tad. I know, I think in our preview, again, this happened almost a year ago, so I might just be misquoting you immensely, Jess. You, we had said something along the lines of like, okay, we're pretty sure Rupert and Laura are going to finish and last <laughs> as long as one team does not monumentally screw up. I did not expect one of the most, <laughs> the teams to monumentally screw up would be one of the teams that had going in here one of the best leg average placements of all time. That is very true. I think we certainly didn't expect that Art and JJ would necessarily be the team that screwed up. But again, I think there was also kind of a giant question mark over these guys. I feel like every other team that wound up on this season were like, yes, of course, those people need to be on this show with this theme. And then there's Art and JJ, and we were trying, we were really struggling to figure out why they were there. And no shade intended to Art and JJ, but now they're not there, and it almost feels like the best possible outcome. Well, it's a little bit as well. I was personally getting flashbacks to the OG Amazing Race All-Stars season, and granted, it's not as fall of a far from grace as our beloved Kevin and Drew, the frat brothers, but they came in pretty good race performers, but fantastic characters, and I don't know what perfect storm of factors were going on in the Amazing Race 11, but they were completely miserable one of them almost died at one point because they dragged the other one behind a jeep for a little bit it just was not the kevin and drew that we were used to seeing and i would say not necessarily from a personality standpoint but i would say certainly from a placement standpoint it's a little odd to see such a quick fall from grace for these two guys who as we were reminded in this in the little montages that i'm sure we'll get into were pretty dominant in their original season and that's up against arguably the most dominant team of all time in Rachel and Dave. This is true. I remember, there's very little I remember about seeing these two on my screen, but I remember thinking like every week, like they are really, really good. They are very tough to beat. And they were almost being portrayed as the team that everybody, even with Rachel and Dave dominating, they were portrayed as the team to beat. And then they come back onto our screens this season and they say they're in even better shape. Like Art lost 40 pounds and they look like they're really hungry and they're really after it. And then it was just like almost immediately things just started going wrong. <laughs> and I I guess they might have done better if they'd caught a break, but it really didn't feel like dumb luck was eliminating them. They just didn't feel like they were up to it. 
Listen, you can lose 40 pounds, but I think the lesson here is never skip leg day. <laughs> oh, dear. Too soon, Mike. <laughs> uh, and he, he went out on one leg, and he couldn't even have two working yeah. ones. So, Mike, we might as well just go straight into this and talk about the undoing of Art and JJ, because I want to call attention, and our regular listeners to the Amazing Race US podcast, and our new listeners who are coming in from the Big Brother and Survivor worlds, probably... Hello. Yes, welcome. Um, and we hope you'll stick around because I think it's going to be a great was, season. Um, should I get into my sumo outfit to greet them? I, I didn't realize you we were actually oh, doing oh, that. Oh, wait. I thought you were already. We're, we're, see, we're on a podcast. I didn't do a wardrobe check. Uh, yeah, I apologize about that. I'll be sure to dress up like the greeter each and every time just for you listeners back there. Uh, and, and we're going to totally tangentialize here. With with Rob gone, I think we're totally unleashed. This is allowing two amazing race uber nerds to just completely spread our nerdery over the course of this podcast. I mean, people were sort of going gaga over this pit stop greeter. I think it's more about the look than it is the actual, uh, you know, behavior, it's right? True. I I think my favorite greeters are always the ones that are the most enthusiastic or the ones that are the most absurd. Um, I'm thinking specifically mm. of the giant puffin from season 25. <laughs> you love that puffin. puffin. The, it might be the greatest greeter of all time next to Welcome to Budapest, Hungary. Oh, yes, I remember that one, too. So, yeah, unfortunately, I think it's, it's, he was a great way to start it off again from a visual perspective. Uh, luckily, they were also shooting in summer. Otherwise, I can imagine it would be pretty cold for that poor man to be standing out there in that garb into the wee hours of the night, assuming how long Laura and Rupert took a walk in the oh, park that's for. that's true. But I do think, I think the weather was not great there. And going back to, if we're going to talk about the undoing of Art and JJ, um, the thing that I was most reminded of is something that I would say probably maybe 10% of our listeners actually watched. And I'm going to go back to Amazing Race Canada. And I believe this was Amazing Race Canada 3. Might have been when you and Dan were doing all of those podcasts for me. We had a we had a father-daughter team that were supposed to be doing a beach task. And then they got hit with this unseasonably cold day and everybody quit every task that leg. Oh yeah. I remember. I remember that. That was, uh, the day, yeah, the, the, just the day of a million penalties. I will never soon forget it in amazing race. History. Yes. Um, and we saw the, we saw this contestant. She was supposed to be buried in sand while her, while her, race partner did another task and she got under the sand and it was very cold that day. I think it was like in the forties and she's in a wetsuit, but she's still like freezing cold and being cold and wet caused her legs to cramp up so badly she couldn't walk. And they ended up getting eliminated on that basis. And I didn't think that was something I would ever see again because it was kind of a strange it seemed like a strange confluence of events, but it looked like you had cold and wet and compression and exertion. And I think this is the same thing that we saw happen last night. Yeah, I talked to Art and JJ today. My exit interview should be up with Parade.com, probably hopefully by the time you guys are getting this. Also, as a quick plug, we also have uh, Taryn Armstrong's exit interview with Art and JJ as well at the end of this podcast. And maybe they'll be able to talk about there as well. but. Or said he was pretty, he was pretty banged up 
from all this. I don't know if it was the dehydration, the fact that they had already been running around on their feet for so long, and it's their first time doing this in like seven years or so, but are legitimately said that it took him three full days after their elimination for him to essentially get up and walk again. So we could have even potentially seen like another Dave and Connor situation where even if let's say, you know, Rupert and Laura have to quit the task as well, or they're they're somehow able to summit the mountain, maybe uh, you know, what the sumo wrestler throws <laughs> art up there and he's able to grab the clue, there's still a chance that they would either have to you know, remove themselves from the race soon afterwards or leave pretty quickly. So it just did not seem like it was in the stars. And yeah, I mean, I guess Phil's warning to Floyd about drinking plenty of water could have been applied about, what, three hours earlier uh, once they landed in Shibuya Plaza. This also answers another question that I think a lot of people had, which was, did it make sense for them to quit a task? Could they have possibly instead of quitting the task, sat there for a while and hydrated and rested. And it sounds like the answer to that is no. So JJ gave some interesting perspective that was surprisingly strategic in nation. Now, I do not qualify that with whether or not it was accurately strategic, but there was some actual thinking there. They apparently had been told beforehand, like, hey, just... Just so you know, there might be head-to-heads on this race. You spoke about that with Phil. Head-to-heads are going to come at the end of a leg. So they were sort of listing out their options of what would they do if they took a penalty. One would be what they were sort of hoping for when Rupert strode his way up that mountain, which was, okay, let's hope that you know he can't do it either, and they have to take the penalty too. The old meat block thing from uh, Season 7 where Boston Rob really pulled one over on a bunch of contestants. The second option was okay, maybe we go from the roadblock to a head-to-head. That way, even if we take the penalty, they still have to wait for us. There still could be one more thing in the way. The third thing that they thought of was, well, I mean, there was one other time in Amazing Race history where they had a non-elimination leg on the first leg. Ironically enough, it also was in Japan. Uh, And so they thought, well, maybe there's a chance that we get non-eliminated. Maybe we have to make up the penalty the next day or something, but we can play catch up from there. Unfortunately, none of those options ended up being the correct one. But yeah, it was interesting to get in JJ's head a bit as to why he decided to walk over and talk to R and basically figure, okay, you know what? I think we should pull ourselves out of this it actually was less about the the physical aspect and actually more about the strategic aspect well, that's really interesting and i mean we haven't seen these guys play before and remembering how much of that stuff they really did seem to think about um you know when they weren't yelling at rachel and brendan um <laughs> it does seem like that is something that they would have considered. And I think a lot of times when you watch these reality shows and there's a scenario that seems very obvious to you, the viewer, they probably did talk about that. That probably did come up at some point, but you can't tell everybody's story to every nuance in 42 minutes. So basically, it looked like it looked like a really rapid, abrupt quit, but I imagine they were there for quite a while talking this out and figuring out what was, like, running all the scenarios and figure out what was the best course of action for them. Or maybe they're just such big fans of the race that you see someone digging in the sand at the very beginning of the leg, and it brings back horrible memories of season 22, and they want to take a penalty by the end of it. Yeah, maybe the idea just got planted in their head. 
<laughs> should we should we i guess we should go back to the beginning as well because i think that one other thing that this episode really benefited from and we can certainly talk about the starting line banter but i think the show did a really great choice in usually with these teams they'll sort of do these introductions then pulling up on a i don't know a doom buggy or a hang glider onto the starting line and give have them do the little pre-tape and give some background here we got what about three of them and then what they did was instead, as these teams were working through this first task and making their way to the airport, then they intersplice those pre-tapes in. And I hope they keep doing that from now on, because when the theme of the show is go, 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 we don't want a lot of time to wait and learn about these people. You know, I know Australian Survivor for the most recent season did this as well. I think it's a really great storytelling technique where you just tweak the placement of the narrative a little bit and it helps things you know, get off to a quicker start. I do start. feel like we've gotten that in more recent seasons. I don't think this is the first time we've seen that sort of narrative tactic. I did see a couple of points where it was very clearly the producers were standing right behind the teams and getting them to say things that would set up some very nice juxtapositions. Like we had one moment where Tyler and Corey are digging up on top of the hill and Colin and Christy are down at the bottom of the hill and you see... You see Tyler yell down, hey, Colin, did you find anything? And you know the produ- that production was making them do that so that they could then segue into uh, who are these people that Tyler just yelled at. Yes, and then a nice little uh, Christy moment where she says, my sand is broken, which I guess makes sense. Technically, I believe sand is sort of broken up particles of stone, but I really hope from now on, every leg, we sort of get a Mad Libs, my blank is broken, depending on don't. the task. I hope we get that all out of our system. I feel like <laughs> everybody was doing that this entire leg. Um, I think we got so much of, we got Leo and Jamal trying to make my wife is pregnant into their catchphrase, which is the worst <laughs> catchphrase of all time. Yeah, I got to say, as someone uh, with a very pregnant wife at the moment, I can't say it's uh, it's something I want to be throwing out to crowds of people but necessarily. But would you use it to get ahead in the Amazing Race, Mike? I think we'd both know the answer to that. I'd, ra- I'd rather use hot soup, personally. I feel like, you know, feel what you want to about kids. Corinne and Eliza have registered their various opinions on kids. But everyone feels the same way about soup. I think if I yelled hot soup, that's something that could infringe upon your rights and your clothes. So that would make you get out of the way quicker. You really in my thought opinion. this through. I think I think that's a good thing to yell in the Amazing Race, and you just learn it in twelve different languages. So everyone, soup is a universal language. Well, you have to make sure this might be kind of like yelling fire in a crowded theater. <laughs> you can't yell hot soup you, on the you street. Might not be able to. That's true. That's true. Did you have any thoughts about the... And look, this is not our first rodeo when it comes to interesting themes behind The Amazing Race and our poor sweet Phil Kogan having to, you know, rile teams up a bit along the lines of that theme. Did you have any thoughts about the starting line chatter? Oh, it really felt like... Again, it felt very forced. It was like... It seemed to me like everybody is still kind of hyper about, oh, we're back on television, we're going to be on TV, we're going to be on The Amazing Race, and we need a couple of episodes at least. Like, we need at least one really intense leg, which I think we got this this leg. I think by episode three, people will stop doing this, but I do think there was a combination of everybody being just really excited to be on camera again, and producers standing behind them going, hey, 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 say something mean about that person. Well, we know who was perfect 
for that producer puppetry. I was so happy to see Rupert in so many <laughs> ways. Uh, and who would have thought, Jess, that Rupert tweets would translate into real life? This is uh, what Rupert said when Phil prompted him to talk about how survivors would do. The survivors in general are very tough. <laughs> It's 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 amazing. It's incredible. This is a fantastically entertaining episode for the Bonhams. I have no idea how long for this world that they are, and they were, I think, saved by every single grace of the Amazing Race gods. But I mean, I, I just I almost forget how much I love Rupert's delivery, and who would have thought his generalisms made its way out of the internet and into real life? I for one was just happy to see Rupert get another chance to dig in the sand. That's the thing. People were saying, like, ooh, you know, Rupert, no wonder Rupert, uh, I think he got, they got the thing second. Like, oh, he's good at digging in the sand. But I feel like it would have been better if they tried to trick him by saying, okay, build a, build a log cabin. Because I feel like that's when you almost have to use reverse psychology, put him in a mind frame of, okay, building a log cabin means digging in the sand. And then he's like a freaking bulldozer into that. So what you're saying is Rupert is basically a giant toddler. <laughs> I mean... I know grown adults that act more like a toddler than Rupert. I think Rupert is a man. He can get angry and he can get morose. But at the end of the day, no matter what mood he's in, he's going to dig a pretty darn good hole. And he was able to do so here. I, I suppose so. The one thing that I think, I think maybe the thing I like the best about Rupert and Laura being on this show is that Phil is already over them. And I think we got that sense when Rob and I spoke to Phil on Monday night. He was already like he was kind of going back to Rupert constantly as the platonic ideal of reality contestants from other universes invading his territory. And it just seemed like every time he had to speak to Rupert, he was like, oh, here we go again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he... The thing about Rupert is, and I think what a lot of people forget about Rupert is sort of like one of the big survivor heroes. Rupert can be very dour. This is the guy who said, you know, so much rot and death. Uh, you know, when he found out he was getting voted out, he's the one who in Heroes versus Villains who he tries to light a fire, leaves, they light a fire, he comes back and he just goes, yay. <laughs> and he immediately turns into, you know, sad sack Rupert over the course of this episode. As soon as basically they hit Japan and they start getting lost. I personally love it just because he provides so many great quotes and I want to bring up a few later. I can understand why other people do not necessarily like it, including Phil. I can imagine if you have one image of the pirate who stole shoes and not to eat them because he thought they were made of chocolate to this guy. It's a little bit of a stark contrast. Well, Mike, we didn't see the full story there. I would not have put it past Rupert to try to eat the shoes to see if they were made of chocolate. That's true, though. I, I mean, if only he had done that roadblock again, that would have been perfect for him. They just they would just say like, oh, yes, these are uh, sandals that were brought in from the Morgan tribe. Rupert, what are you going to do? Yeah, I, I think I think honestly, again, it would be very on brand for Rupert to taste the shoes to see if they were made of chocolate. <laughs> Maybe he does that every he, day. He might. He might. I, I don't know his life. Let's be fair. But I would say that. I'm almost happy to have Rupert around for however long we get him just because I enjoy their new reactions it's getting from Phil. I don't think I've seen Phil this exasperated by a team's presence in a really long time. Like I've seen him have these sort of adversarial relationships. Like I think our favorite one in recent memory is the way he needled Connor, but that was 
much more good natured. This is just like, oh, I, this is my life now. I have to tell Rupert he's the second to last team to arrive. Well, speaking of Connor, Jess, I think that Phil has moved on to a new bow, a new whipping boy. Uh, here comes Tyler Oakley, and Phil has, uh, <laughs> has drawn some particular, particular attention to him at the starting line. Tyler, I've never seen you so silent. Maybe it's those big guns you're more interested in. Your big you need to mind your business, Phil. Well, and Tyler's not going to have any of it. Like, I feel like Connor didn't know how to come back. Tyler is the master of the comeback, but Phil is right. Did you see his arms? I mean, look, you got to show off the good, especially if you are showing yourself off as threats to other people. You're not going to wear your, your baggy ass sweater to the starting line. But yeah, it, I mean, Tyler and Corey are super smart. You'd have to assume that if they worked out to go on the race the first time, it would be five times harder because I guess their assumption would be, OK, we're at least coming back with some returning racer team. So they're going to amp up the competition a lot. So, I mean, I think everything we said preseason about them is, is playing to <laughs> to their type right now. Uh, and I mean, I, I, I don't know how Tyler felt about Phil uh, calling out his game, his bicep game, but hopefully uh, they'll be able to put them to good use. Oh, later look, on. Mike, if you were half of a team that was as iconic as Tyler and Corey, you have to assume you're getting called back to go on that show again at some point. I would say the minute you get home from the first outing, you start CrossFit. I could just imagine him at his desk just doing barbell curls for the past, what, three or four years? I mean, I would start a fitness sub-channel. Actually, I wouldn't because I don't want people to know how hard I'm working out. Yeah, I mean, I could do, I would say CrossFit Corey, but Corey is the one that Phil did not call out on his muscles. Well, Corey so. is the one we that nobody find- ever calls out because Corey is not the one with 6 million Twitter followers. As much as I love Corey, yeah. and I think you can't have Tyler and Corey without Corey, but let's be real. Well, I mean, look, Corey was also, I will say, but we get later to the costumes for the second roadblock, I would say best dressed. Probably goes to Corey. I think he. I think he worked it. He even wanted Tyler to compliment him 100%, on his wig. Corey pulled that off. Yes, he was definitely the hot. There were some others, maybe in the not column. Uh, I guess we should get into this first task, Jess. I'm intrigued <laughs> by because usually, usually an amazing race. Sometimes we have a starting line task, and usually it is to delegate separated. In flights. other words, usually it means something. In a manner of speaking, yes. Instead, we are going to go into the octopus's dried garden, uh, where Sir Squiddington has put his submission in for the newest sandcastle contest, dig around an octopus, and find a clue. But it seemed like, from what I saw with the airport stuff, albeit brief, there were no separate flights, yeah, th- right? So was it was it all just dig in the sand and then go yeah, to the airport? Yeah, this was 100% confirmed on Twitter. I think it was Eliza who confirmed it. They were all on the same flight to Tokyo, and they were even on the same bus from from the airport into downtown. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, I guess I could understand it in that they want to make sure. I even saw, I think I saw like a guy like wave them down to get on the bus. Maybe they want to make sure that there were no huge separations of the pack early on because when you are playing with, you know, such a stratified group of veterans versus newbies in a manner of speaking, you want to make sure that, you know, the, the wheat and the chaff are still mixed together. But that is a particularly one tracked for the beginning of, a, of an amazing race. This is something I think we have complained about it both ways. 
I don't know if there's a perfect solution, to be honest, because I think I do recall in season 24, especially this being really egregious where there would be two sets of flights. And the first, it was basically like you were competing for immunity because if you got on that first flight, you were going to be two hours ahead of everybody else. And so it was really a race to the bottom between the three teams that made it onto the second flight. And so from that angle, I do think it makes more sense to put everybody on one flight. We've seen every iteration of airport drama at this point. And since they don't really book their own flights anymore, and it's not as vaunted a skill to go in and say, and say, find this flight that nobody else can find and sneak your way into the airport lounge. We kind of don't spend time in airports anymore. And maybe the show is a little bit better because of it. I'm almost coming around to this idea. I would rather have everybody on one flight than everybody in the back of the pack be on a flight and those be the only people that might conceivably get eliminated. Do we think we could split the middle, though, and come up with something, some sort of advantage to give those people who were able to dig in the sand? Could it be like you pick the order for performing the first roadblock? You know, depending on if, if they end up going with the same first roadblock. I, I think the, the problem, I don't, I don't necessarily have a problem with the streamlining. Like you said, if it gets them to their location easier than just sort of lets them go, especially into such a chaotic terrarium that is Shibuya Plaza, that makes sense. I think my issue with the sand digging was just that it was essentially meaningless because there was absolutely nothing no prize to it and sand is coarse and it's rough and it gets everywhere that sand's going to be lasting the entirety of the race and maybe it was just a setup to get people more uncomfortable and i think i think it did a good job of pulling people out of their comfort zone immediately i it's better in that regard i think i like having a task at the front but you're right it should mean something and i have a few ideas for that um if we are all going on the same flight to tokyo Could we stagger our arrivals at the next task, for instance? Or here's one that's kind of radical. I think I got this, and I know there are there's a very small percentage of people out there that catalog all of this stuff, and I'm so glad people have seen every international edition because I have not. I think it was Amazing Race Norway that did this, where they had a task, and then everybody got on the same flight, and then once they arrived, your task was easier based on what order you arrived in. And you had a scavenger hunt type situation where the earlier you finished the task before it, the fewer things you had to find. Hmm. That could have been interesting, especially with the the labyrinthian Shibuya Plaza, where they could have like maybe it could have been like a shopping task where they had to find a certain number of things. Though again, concerning with how many people were able to un- not able to find two stores to begin with, uh, that could have just made the problem much, much worse. Yeah. Um, my theory on how hard to find those stores were, I thought at first, like, a Tokyo Tokyo restaurant in Tokyo would probably be hard to Google, but somebody then Googled it for me out in the social media world, and it turns out that's actually pretty easy to find. Is this, is, is this supposed to be like a New York, New York type of thing. I'm very confused with the naming of this restaurant. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure myself, or maybe there's some sort of wordplay situation going on, but I think mostly stuff in Shibuya, I would guess it's sort of like the Times Square of Tokyo, and 
Certainly looks like it. And it looks like they dressed up like Times Square characters for the second roadblock. <laughs> they certainly, yeah, like you'd give them $5 to pose for a picture with them and then they'd shake you down for more. Yeah, exactly. I don't know where they'd put that money. But yeah, it looks like uh, Times Square Trolls is the first thing I thought of. Either that or like they were dressing up for a low-rent uh, brush-your-teeth <laughs> PSA as like cavity creeps. That's a deep pull, Mike. Wow. I... <laughs> As as deep as I a was going to say, they were trying out for Seussical the musical. Ah, that's true. I believe uh, someone also made a Doctor Seuss reference as well. So it's it's really those multicolored wigs that are, are really yeah. Doing that's it. that's really kind of the icing on the cake that are those outfits. But Shibuya, I think it's more of a it's not an area that like if you just kind of had a random job in Tokyo, you're not going to go there for fun. I think. It's probably, it's like a business hub, but it's also a tourist hub. And I think people go there to see the intensity of it. And there's a lot of shopping and hotels in that area. And so I think there's an element of chaos to it that people were less prepared for. But I also think if anywhere in Tokyo is going to have a restaurant called Tokyo Tokyo, it's probably going to be in Shibuya. I think there's, these shops are going for great SEO, though, because when you type in like Tokyo restaurant, that's probably going to be one of the first that comes up. And as well, the other place, Lock and Security, I'm pretty sure it's called like ABC ACB. or AC. Yeah, if you just type the first three letters of the English alphabet, it'll probably come up. So I think they're just they're looking to just hop to the top of the results. But before we get to that, uh, can we talk for a second about our mid episode brutal cast assessment from that we got from hashtag Team Villain Corinne and Eliza? Well, you knew that was coming. Um, I honestly, I'm more disappointed that the one clip we got from their reality pasts, like everybody got a few seconds of their reality show pasts, except Eliza, because instead of getting it's an effing stick, we got Corinne like just savaging sugar and not particularly coming off well. It's not Corinne's finest hour. There were many clips we could have chosen from here. And I don't know that that one is necessarily representative, but on the other hand, we did get a pretty good brutal cast assessment. Yeah, and Joseph Dunn actually asked that question, too. Of, did Corinne make Eliza a villain? Because I remember her as a sympathetic underdog. And I, I think your mileage may vary at that last statement, but it really does seem, at least, you know, uh, I've covered Eliza's two seasons on the Survivor Historians, be watching her pretty closely. And yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where, like, Maybe she was considered a villain to the people she was playing with because they did not like her. But I don't remember that the audience was detesting Eliza, especially not on the level that Corinne was either aiming for or achieved. That is true. I, I think it's kind of there are two different sides of a coin here. I think Corinne is somebody that got along very well with her fellow competitors, but did not play well to the audience. And Eliza was somebody that. I think especially in her first time out on Survivor, the the audience thought that she was a very sympathetic character and liked her very much, but the people she was playing with maybe didn't necessarily feel the same way. Mm, it's a good point. Well, at any rate, these two sides of the coin have come together in the hopes of winning a million dollars, but I guess let's not bury the lead here. Let's dig it up like Rupert. Uh, let, let's hear their assessment on a few of the teams that will also eventually for the most part school them in this leg of the race but there are definitely some teams that are really easy picks. victor and nicole we've so nicknamed we think, them team Dunn. yeah rupert is really old he's got like this big 
potbelly. Did you say <laughs> Like, he's not exactly Mr. Athletic. <laughs> Rachel has raced to the final leg twice, but like with we Brendan carrying her. Really her with Alyssa, good luck lips. Rachel and Alyssa look like they lost a bet. Those outfits are a lot. You're going home. Savage. And I think the best part of that clip is obviously Rupert asking Laura, did you save your mayonnaise? Oh, that's why I pulled it Good. separately. Did you save your mayonnaise? That's the new I found a lemon tree. <laughs> Except it's the opposite. It's give me your mayonnaise. Yes. Well, no, he, he I love that that's also the representation. He didn't demand it. He just wanted to know if she saved it. That's a very, like, passive-aggressive way, I think, of asking someone, like, hey, like, it's, it's basically asking, hey, you're going to finish that. You know, uh, but I love it because I love all the things the editor chose for that to be the thing for them being like Rupert so slovenly and old. Look at how much he desires mayonnaise. Shannon Gates is shook. <laughs> and there's fun, there's great irony in this, though, in that and they'll even admit to this. So I give them major kudos for it, that at the end of the episode, they basically get nearly all the teams, including the self-proclaimed team dummy that they use with Victor and Nicole end up passing them. And they, they uh, do not have a great first leg. They do from an entertainment perspective, uh, not so much from a success perspective. Can I just say team dummy is kind of weak sauce. I, I rewound it a few times because I'm like, that can't be the only thing they said about Victor and Nicole. I feel like there's much lower hanging fruit that yields better results here. And that was all they could come up with. Like, Oh, you're stupid. Ha ha. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting, especially coming from someone like Corinne, you would expect a more colorful word to come up, but maybe they said it's the first leg, we don't want to tempt the FCC too much, uh, but I mean, we still have, we might still have some nicknames down the pipeline if they stick around. They're going to become the Sawyer of Amazing Race, just a much more explicit and uh, mean version of I think of it's it. more, they spent too much time digging up the clue because they were hoping to have a little more extra time on the airport shuttle to think up good snarky things to say. They might have also blown, you know, invested all of their energy in good luck lips, which I think is, is a pretty good one-liner. It's true. Like, that would have been hashtagged if we were still doing hashtags at the bottom of the screen. Yeah, because then it would have been made multiple things. It could be used as a, you know, a, a warm uh, salutation, or it could be as an object, your good luck lips, with, which Janelle apparently has, considering how much she was able to get that shoe on her first Yeah, try. well, I, I, I'm told that this is kind of how Janelle plays every game um, by lucking into massive strokes of brilliant luck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would say so. There were definitely were some things that went away, especially in Big Brother 7. You know, there were things that were thrown to her or things that she just happened to win. Not to discredit her whatsoever. Again, I will double down on what I said in the cast assessment. And I'm, I'm happy that her and Brittany were doing well for at least a little while here in the first episode. But Janelle is a beast in so many ways in both competition and entertainment. But yeah, she, she's gotten a, a little lucky in her various seasons. And we see it a bit here. Uh, I mean, she said it firsthand. She's a lucky yeah, bitch. Well, I, I think that's an important part of running The Amazing Race. And I think it's an important part of any of these reality shows is if it, if it doesn't swing your way, you can be amazing at stuff and you're still going to go home. I think that is true across the board. One thing I did love about all of these flashbacks we got to other shows in the past shows, they sprinkling them throughout the first 15 minutes of the episode. They did a great job of contextualizing most of the personalities by giving them a highlight reel. I did notice that, 
you really didn't get much from Chris and Brett and you didn't get much from Art and JJ because I think maybe there was less to work with here. Yeah, I mean, you can really show Art and JJ, you know, trying to uh, wriggle out and get uh, a couple of police officers to admit that they weren't teachers. Plus, I mean, now that it makes sense why they really outlined, hey, we were so close, but we didn't go down this sled. It, it was so bad that, you know, Dave and Rachel had to go back and do it again, and they still passed us. And of course, irony of ironies, they had trouble going down the hill last time. Now they have trouble going up the hill. Chris and Brett, I honestly just think it comes down to the fact that we didn't really see too much of them interacting on Survivor Millennials versus Gen X. I mean, Chris had a pretty sizable role, especially comparatively to Brett, but he went out, you know, in 10th place so or 11th place so i think that you know it just might not have been able to pull from that information uh but at least from a brett and chris perspective it was great to see them on here because they definitely had an episode too and especially you know us rhjp fans have been realizing for a while how much of an entertaining person brett labelle is but i feel like now millions of people are gonna be able to come around on him considering all the great stuff he was doing this yeah, episode. i mean i think you didn't even really get that watching millennials versus gen x um there was really brett got almost no story and we were pleasantly surprised after the season when it turned out that he is amazing um, he's hilarious, and he's great on social media. He's great on the various podcasts he's been on. And Chris just plays a perfect straight man for him. Like, the two of them... Literally. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, the two of them, they're such, they're such polar opposites, and that makes it really excellent for them to play off of each other. And we got a little taste of that this episode. I think in future episodes, we're going to get a lot more of that. Hopefully, if they get some Merlot with their chocolate, like Brett was requesting. I'm, I'm surprised he went for the wine instead of the beer, but maybe he's become a, a classier gen. Maybe Amazing Race is more of a wine show than Survivor is a beer I show. I can't think of any dessert that pairs with beer, Mike. Uh, honestly, you really, you need, you need something more robust. You need a wine. You need something with a little bit of sweetness to it to complement your chocolate. Um, I think beer is better with salty snacks. So when they have the one where they have to where they have to taste a bunch of hats to find out which one is made out of potato chips, that's when you want your beer. Just wait. It might happen when they come back to Japan. Before we get to that, because that's ridiculous on its own. You know, we get to Shibuya Plaza and it really does seem like the amazing race teams just say same old, same old. We know what to do. And it really seems like we're getting hammered in here that the house guests and the survivors just have no idea what they're doing. Cue Rupert stumbling around several times going, I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, so, I mean, I know we got a couple of questions about this, but we know this is obviously a microcosm of the fact that those who have run the race before are naturally suited better to run it the second time than people running it for the first time. Do we think this is going to be a continuing trend based on what we saw this episode? Well, I am not surprised that the Amazing Race teams kind of destroyed everybody else. They're on the first leg, but I do think people will catch up. I think being able to anticipate what that first leg is going to be like and knowing a little bit what to expect really served the Amazing Race teams very well uh, because they have had to navigate unfamiliar territory. And in fact, I want to point out that the Afghanimals not only had a leg in Tokyo before, they had an actual task in Shibuya. They were in this exact oh, really? spot. Um, and at that point, they were not looking for a business. They were looking for a person dressed as a vending machine. 
because Japan. Oh, yeah. This is, uh, you know, people are tuning in here for the first time and you're wondering, like, wow, this is a very oddly painted picture of Japan. Yes, that is how the amazing race does Japan. And we do love it. It is quirky. It's a little chintzy. But man, do we love it. I, I do and I don't. But I will say I like that they take people in a really into a really uncomfortable environment that is very different from where they just were. And they force them to navigate on their own. And I think the culture shock of going into the middle of downtown Tokyo really set the tone for the season. And I think the teams that have never experienced anything like that before will be able to catch up in a big hurry. But for this first leg, it's not surprising that teams that have had to call upon those skills in the past were able to call upon them again. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think it's also the culture shock specifically with Japan. You know, Art and JJ talked to me about this. In their original season, they went to, I believe, Argentina, where, you know, they knew a bit of Spanish, obviously, from their line of work, but also I feel like Spanish is a pretty commonly taught language in the United States, as opposed to Japanese, which I feel like is a little bit harder of a hurdle to overcome when it comes to language. So it's almost like we're sort of skipping from beginner to advanced rather than sort of going to the intermediate level, which might be, you know, a Spanish-speaking country. Yeah, and you know, even those of us that did take Japanese in school, I think I remember any of it. <laughs> That's true. I don't know if you know the, uh, how do you go to ACB lock and security company? I, I, would I would not have the first clue how to ask that. I, I could probably manage, do you speak English? And I could probably manage, uh, thank you very much, and that might be the end of it. Um. And a lot so, of food words, of course, because in any language, you have to learn the food words. Though in Japan, Jess, apparently food might not look like food. Uh, we are going to the edge of extinction. <laughs> I mean, the edge of Shibuya. Uh, and we are, well, the Bonhams thought they were going there. It turns out they get the clue first and they are doing really well again for the second time this leg. Not for long. They end up getting lost as the other teams, Afghanimal specifically, make their way here. And for the first roadblock, inspired by the, quote, cringeworthy form of entertainment that is Japanese game shows, they have to find one of 12 shoes made of chocolate by biting into it. We saw a clip from this, but Jess, were you aware before this episode of the phenomenon of the Japanese game show basically referred to as is it candy or not candy? I, I did not know about this exact Japanese game show, Mike, but I do think it is worth pointing out. The Amazing Race US has been to Japan eight times. In four of those eight times, they have done a wacky Japanese game show task. And they've also played that quasi-racist pentatonic music in the background. And I wish it would go away forever. I really want them to do more research than this. And while I recognize the entertainment value in having the Japanese game show format, I didn't need it on both tasks. And I certainly don't need it on 50% of all of the visits to Japan this show has ever done. So that's thing number one. Mm -hmm. But that being said, this was really... I, I guess it's in interesting that it was based on a real show that they have in Japan. They didn't need to have the game show on this task. This was a perfectly cromulent task all on its own. Just like take people into a room full of 
traditional Japanese sandals and say, find the one that is food. And this calls back to two tasks that they've done in Japan in the past. Um, I want to go back to season, um, was this in Japan? This had to be in Japan because it was sushi. Season 17, they had the mm-hmm. task where it was a room full of fake food. It was a room full of real food and they had to find the fake food. So it was the opposite of yes. the sandal task. And every time you pointed to something and it was real food, you had to eat it. And so that was basically the opposite of this task. And then there was also a task, I think the penultimate leg of season 12, where they had to go into a flower shop full of fake flowers and find the one real flower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, the only the only one I remember from season 12 is where they had to program the robot to kick a soccer goal. But I remember yeah, that, that one as well. that was the other half, I think, of that detour. Um, so these are things I don't think you need the Japanese game show conceit on it, especially if your second task is also going to be Japanese game show that just felt a little unnecessary to me. And it felt very reductive of Japanese culture. I think there have been legs where we haven't mentioned game shows at all that have been far more successful. Not to mention that this really wasn't the game show atmosphere. Usually, like, the very first one that we call back to is, in aforementioned season 15, was the big, you know, spin the wheel and eat wasabi or eat whatever's sort of on the wheel there. And that had the big bombastic sound effects and visuals and everything. They really went all out. This would be a segment on a game show that's on, like, its 12th season and the studio has pulled all funding <laughs> So there's no audience. They're out in the middle of a park in the middle of the night with one ramp. They're sitting in random stores eating chocolate. So in so, other words, yeah, this it was is a weird. microcosm of the amazing race. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's sort of like this is the Friday night death slot version of the Japanese game show. But yeah, I've uh, I've actually seen this before. It's one of those things where where you scroll through Facebook and you just see like, wow, can you believe that there's this show exists and there's a montage. Maybe I'll post it on social media afterwards of just a two minute montage of people biting into objects that have been, you know, some some of them are candy that have been made to look like real objects. Some of them are just real objects and they're biting into the corner of tables, uh, a doorknob, uh, a, a leaf on a plant someone's bow tie and they have to figure out if it's i guess they don't have to figure out i think they just have to i guess it's luck of the draw whether or not it's candy yeah i i don't understand how that's a whole show i think i think a two-minute montage sounds about right for that yeah i mean listen there are other shows in the u.s that we could say why is there a show about that Fair. i'm I, it, it's interesting because i know corinne treats something out along the lines of like that chocolate was such a waste of calories it was disgusting but like Here's my here's my rule of life, especially when it comes to food. If you have something that is not made out of the thing that it looks like, it's not going to taste good. Oh, if you're going if you're going for style over substance, then it's almost never going to, you know, tickle your oh, taste. I disagree. Buds. I've always wanted to open a restaurant called Surprise where all of the food looks like other food. I mean, not only would that be extremely confusing, I don't know, it's just it's just something, maybe you get a mental picture in your head, but, like, I can't imagine that these Japanese chocolatiers are carving off their best Godivas to make these pairs of sandals to sit out under these lights for, you know, three hours while people try to stick their mouths into it 43 well, it's times. the same way that all of the stuff on Cake Boss is made of fondant and tastes like styrofoam. 
Yeah, that's exactly, I. that's totally in the category for me as well. If it's made up to look like a fire truck, great, but they're not really focusing on the bake of it. They're focusing on it looking like a fire yeah, truck. Yeah, I mean, give me a plain, ugly cake that tastes like cake over a cake shaped like a sailboat that tastes like a sailboat. <laughs> Did you, were you able to, at a certain point, having sort of recognition as to what was the candy and what was not? I couldn't tell i mean they do film it in high def but i have i had no way of knowing and i think if you weren't sitting right there in the room you wouldn't have any way of knowing either yeah my wife was like oh i think i know what it is and there was a certain point when phil introduces the task and the lady holds up two of the sandals next to her that there's a definite difference in color and texture but i can imagine both between the lighting and the fact that some of these shoes were like like 12 feet away from them like it was like they were at the shoe zoo and they had to look from afar and be like yes please bring that one to me i'd love to sample that one yeah i mean i think most pregnant women are just like really sensitive to smells but maybe your wife is has like supervision uh yes or hot supervision yes. So, yeah, did you have any thoughts about the way this played out? I mean, I know that we saw some people struggling pretty badly. It took Victor, what, 43 attempts with those glorious chompers to find one? I think it took Eliza, like, 39 as well. Do you think that was understandable, given the well, task? it took Victor, like, how many tries before he put on his glasses? So maybe he brought that one on himself. And it also took Victor many attempts to stay in the Big Brother house. So I think this guy is just all about if you don't succeed at first, try, try again. Well, he's, he's lucky to have been given so many extra chances. And like we said, luck is a skill you're going to need on The Amazing Race. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but I mean, I can't believe 43 chances. I mean, I don't think we're going to see departure times next time because I really think that Rupert and Laura were extremely behind. But... You'd have to imagine that he was there for such a long time if he was just chomping through nearly 50 sandals to find the yeah, right one. but he one. had that time. And he didn't yeah. need... And one thing that I thought was really clear about this episode was there was a lot of spread between the first team and the last team. And I think if you are going to bunch everybody onto the same flight... I don't mind it if you do end up organically getting your teams all spaced out over the course of the leg. And, you know, this was even the first task and you were already had teams that were hours and hours behind. That's pretty great. I think more skilled teams that were better at directions might have made this a really boring leg. Yeah, I agree. I think it's great stratification. I think, you know... Even directions might have screwed Nicole and Victor, I believe, not to get too far ahead to the second roadblock, but I'm pretty sure they left there in like third or fourth and then finish further behind some of the other teams just because they probably weren't able to find their way to the temple at the end of the day. But yeah, it was really interesting. And there still was some passing as well. So it's the perfect combination of not everybody bunched together due to the way the leg was constructed, combined with the fact that there was still leeway for people to pass each other due to them either failing or succeeding at tasks or just not finding their way around Japan. Yeah, and this was something I think we called it out at the time that was missing from season 24. We had so many tasks where everybody just came in on the same transportation and everybody was at the same tasks together all the time. And it really took all the energy out of it. Mm, yeah, exactly. It, it feels better to sort of like, I want to say reward good racing, especially since, again, so much of it is up to luck. But this is a way to really sort of help 
thin out the pack a bit and say like, okay, like the Afghanimals might have had their best leg in quite, maybe arguably their best leg in their three seasons of racing. Uh, and they really were able to blaze far ahead, whereas some of these other teams, quite the opposite, just due to both their racing skills and some of the other circumstances involved. Yeah, I want to take a moment here to call out the Afghanimals because I think it took them three seasons to figure out a multitude of things here. They ran a perfect leg. They were really skilled and they were also charming because I remember the first time we saw them back in season 23, they came off as tryhards most of the time. And in season 24, it was like they were caught up in some drama because everybody that season was caught up in drama and not necessarily because they actually had any bone to pick with anybody. And now I feel like they're just themselves. It took them two entire seasons of being on camera to get comfortable on camera. And here they are and they're funny and they're sweet and they run a great race. So I'm liking these new Afghanimals where I kind of rolled my eyes at them the first two times they were out. Jess, they have people back home that they're running for. Jamal has his his three-year-old daughter. And of course, Leo has Pablo the cat. I'm doing this for you, Pablo. Meow. That's that's sweet. I, I Everybody's got to have someone. Absolutely. And I think tinfoil hat theory here, we know that uh, Mike White and Nick Wilson, the final two of Survivor, David versus Goliath, were also cats. Could the cats continue to be on top here? Could we see a Leo and Jamal win based on the fact that Leo meowed in the first episode? I think cat people are having the best 2019 ever. Yes, 2019, nine lives. It all makes sense. This is the year of the cat. Screw you, Chinese Zodiac. Oh God, Mike, if you keep talking like this, they're going to give you your own show on the History Channel. <laughs> oh, boy. Cats. That'll be the meme with just my cracked out face. I also loved in the roadblock how it wasn't just pick the shoe. Then you have to, like, lady in the tramp style, eat it with your partner at the I end. I thought that was cute um, because I think... You can't you can't taste something without having to eat the whole thing on the amazing race. This isn't Survivor. Yeah, that's true, though. I think uh, and actually Rob reached out to me to see if I could pull this clip. I believe Laura Boneham actually might have accidentally outed a very interesting component of this roadblock. Hmm. I get high up the sugar. (laughs) Oh. Jess, she was going to get high off of the chalk that would explain a lot of what happened later there's a reason they're called edibles oh dear is, is that even legal in japan i've i have no idea uh, they're both stringent and more lax than i think the united states of america but yeah that could make a lot of sense I, you know I, i've always wondered they've done sometimes like the everyone grab a roaming gnome and if you happen to have the one with the star on the bottom you get the prize for that week if we go to like amsterdam or something could there be a thing of like hey everybody grab a brownie and if you grab one specific brownie good luck wow or what if what if like everybody could vote on who gets that brownie yeah we're gonna have a brownie vote i you know we are we are revolutionizing the amazing race here i I hope bertram is writing this all down Yes, please, Bertram, take it all down uh, and then take it all in. And let's see if we can see that on season 33 moving forward. Make the brownie vote a thing. Yeah, I, I, I'm here for the brownie vote. And they're probably going to have another leg in Amsterdam. It's an airport hub. There's a lot to do there. And we haven't exhausted the possibilities for activities. So, yeah, this is 
this is definitely happening now. But you know, uh, Rupert was probably grimacing through eating that chocolate because he wished it was made of mayonnaise. Did you save your mayonnaise? Yeah, well, maybe that was why he was saving the mayonnaise in case he had an eating task. Like, you know, they didn't <laughs> say you couldn't use condiments on the shoe. <laughs> yeah. We put, need to put mayonnaise on all the gross things like chocolate shoes. I, I This is why I love podcasting with you, Mike Bloom, because I never know what road I'm going to wind up going down. And I, I'm sure I never thought I'd be talking about putting mayonnaise on a chocolate shoe. Yeah, we're going down the chocolate road right now. But I guess the chocolate road is pretty slippery. I guess we should talk about the other roadblock here. Who wants to climb Mount Fuji? Though, I'm, I'm no geologist, Jess, but I'm pretty sure Mount Fuji should have a decline to it. <laughs> this one's pretty much an incline and then stops. Yeah, and I thought it was a lot bigger. Yeah, I mean, it's it says it's 20 feet. Maybe it's just a very steep 20 feet. I guess. I, But, you know, given how much trouble some of these teams had with it, they might as well have been climbing actual Mount Fuji. <laughs> yeah, they probably would have rather chosen that because Fuji is not, quote, as slippery as a wet noodle. Not that I know of. No. No. And we all know what goes great with noodles. Mayonnaise. Did you save your mayonnaise? We better just keep that on the soundboard for the rest of the season. Oh, it's it's spreadable basically everywhere. Yeah, I, I I hope so. So what what did you think? Because I guess we're sort of pairing the eating task with this quote unquote physical task. I did see a comment about how, you know, uh, oh, I'm surprised that, you know, the Big Brother people weren't more adept to this. Because this is sort of like what they do in OTEV, right? Is, is walk up a slippery surface and occasionally get brain damage. But I feel like it was something about the fact that they didn't have a rope to grab onto. They did find sort of. Uh, handholds that worked for people except Becca, who didn't really need it, but this seemed a bit harder than your usual Big Brother comp climb. You know, honestly, I thought it looked exactly like every Big Brother comp, um, right down to the fact that there was no element of this that could not have been set up in the backyard of the Big Brother house. So do you think we're going to see Mount Oteb for Big Brother for Big Brother 21 this summer? It's very possible. Like, that thing's inflatable. They could just, like, pack it down and, like, put it in a suitcase and ship it off to California. I am Otev, the chocolate sandal. Here. Bring me back matching socks of the evicted house guests. Boy, I thought it wasn't going to get weirder than Rupert putting mayonnaise on a sandal, and you just went there. Listen, I'm just throwing Bertram. Bertram, please take that one down. Highlight it as well. Asterisk it, because it's, it's an idea. It's not a really good idea, but it's, it's an idea. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think people had varying things. Leo... Struggled a bit as first, as cat-like as he could be, until he realized, could you vocalize his strategy here, Jess? Because I had a difficult time figuring it out at first. Um, well, he said that his hands were wet because the surface was wet. And so he dried his hands off. And then I think it was something about the way he placed his hands on there. He could create some suction, which gave him a little more purchase. Okay, because I thought I heard something about like him wiping his arms down and then taking the grabby holes. Leo also talks very fast and animated. And look, this is me throwing a stone in, a, in my glass house. I couldn't really understand what he was saying. See, I listen to all of my podcasts on 2x speed, so he sounds completely normal to me. <laughs> yeah, Leo lives on 2x speed. Yeah, um, I might have to slow down that exit interview when whenever it comes out, if one ever does. Then it sounded like he had eaten the the bad sandal. Wow. Wow. <gasps> yes. So, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, everyone 
I'd say everyone pretty much does a you know a pretty good job. You know, we have a couple of highlights. Becca doing it in thirty seconds. Floyd almost gambles away his half of the money to uh to have her make it up there in such a short amount of time. Yeah, that was cute. And you know, we haven't gotten enough Becca and Floyd yet this season. Uh, the two of them, I think, are maybe one of the great success stories of the Amazing Race, just because they kind of single handedly justify the blind date concept. Is it just me, or did Floyd get more animated? Like, who put a nickel in Floyd? I don't know, maybe it's because there was so much wackiness going on with the Amazing Race 29 that I didn't really notice it, but he was he was being a little extra to the cameras, and I love it. Between that stuff, between him saying earlier, like, Becca and I, our friendship has grown so much more, we're dating, just kidding, uh, which all the Team Fun stands, I'm sure, were, like, momentarily overjoyed yeah, yeah. and then promptly throwing out their uh, their Flecka merchandise. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, he seems really fun in particular. Becca's always been a kook, and I love her for that. But I don't know if I just misremembered, but I feel like Jess Floyd has been a, a lot of fun so well, far. I think Floyd maybe took what he saw watching himself back on The Amazing Race and kind of thought about how he would improve that aspect of it next the next time out. And also, he and Becca have logged a lot of time in front of a camera since their time on The Amazing Race. They've had a YouTube channel where they have broken down their own race experience and then recapped other seasons of The Amazing Race. So the two of them, I think, have gotten a rapport that enables them to play off of each other in ways that they didn't when they were first getting to know one another. So that's kind of a joy to get to see them now as genuine friends. And I think maybe he's just more comfortable and he's more in his element, both with the cameras and with Becca, and that frees him up to be a little more animated. What do you think about their fun, stoppable gear? We we don't really have too much of the like you know decal logo uh, branded content. Uh, I don't know if it's maybe CBS sort of put the kibosh on it. I know that Brendan and Rachel last time they came out had their own branded gear, but it seems like Team Fun's really the only ones that have emphasized that outside of you know Rupert's. Well, tie-dye. on a related note, um, can you explain to me what survive race get paper means? Um. I'm trying to think it's a meme. I don't think it's a meme. It just seems like three active verbs that just were placed on a shirt. Three active verbs and an object. Yeah, essentially. So it was, you said survive, race, get paper. Yeah, is paper money, maybe? Maybe. Maybe they were making a to-do list and they accidentally sent that to the printing company and just went with it. Yeah, and also, did Crit and Eliza have their Twitter handles on the backs of their shirts? Ooh, I didn't notice that. That would, I mean, that would be fantastic branding if they were able to, to get that to I'm surprised production approved it, if that's the case. I know Eliza's shirt says E. Orleans on the back of it. Hmm. Maybe do your shirt doesn't say New Orleans? I, I'm pretty sure it does not. Maybe, maybe that's where it was produced. Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's how they justified it to production when they were approving wardrobe. But at any rate, I think they are the only other team that I've clocked as having actual, like, branded gear albeit gear that's a little inexplicable to me but i'm sure this is a meme that you and i don't know and like some gen zer will tweet at us the explanation of it tomorrow yeah i can't i mean just wait until phil says one race s go and s get it and that's the start of the race yeah yeah or he's gonna ask like what teams have smoke with each other <laughs> exactly that i get like the smoke that was uh fanning down art's leg at that one point uh, I mean, a, a couple. I mean, I guess we got to focus on the big kerfuffle that happened because this was a fairly, I think, rote task outside of the art and JJ stuff. And of course, 
Oh boy. Poor Brett yeah. Liddell. <laughs> I mean, to his credit, he rocked the unitard, but did not did not really grasp the nature of the task at first. Nor did he grasp the clue at first. That too. That too. Yeah, so so for those of you that might not remember, so it, it, the instructions were pretty straightforward. And again, no slight to Brett here. Not that much of a slight, I should say. You run up the mountain, grab the clue, come back down. There wasn't really any other like paraphernalia to distract you, no goats, no mountain climbers. Uh, but Brett, I think it was just so pumped of adrenaline, made his way all the way up the ramp, turned around and said, now what? And then decided to come all the way back down before actually seeing the clues. And I know that Survivor Twitter in particular, you know, I think it's uh, it's understandable. Brett likes to, to work one over on the contestants, uh, I th- the current contestants on Survivor. I think it's only understandable that Roundabout is fair trade here. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to dish it out, you got to be willing to take it. Yes, and take the clue, too, yes, please. Yes, do. don't forget to take the clue. Yeah, I mean, this, it was it was a fun little moment. It's no, uh, you know, Fran and Barry walking past the first clue box several times in Amazing Race 9. But it was a nice little, like, doofy moment for Brett that, again, showed off his personality. And I'm happy that they survived. And now everyone has something they can rag on Brett LaBelle for next time he rags on yeah. you. Well, I don't want to jump around too much here. But speaking of people walking by things that are obvious, I do think I want to talk for a minute <laughs> about... About the Afghanimals finding the clue spot and then pretending to get in a fight and be lost because they seem to be a little bit higher on the caliber of their performance than maybe I might have been. Yes, Tender Terran asks, what grade would you give the Afghanimals Hollywood acting performance? Jess, on a scale from Razzie to Oscar, what award would you give the Afghanimals for their performance? Oh, I would say I would give them a big old piece of scenery to chew on. Like, maybe the scenery is made of chocolate. Uh-oh. <laughs> that's, I was going to say, maybe that, maybe that's the reason why that uh, game show was not long for this world, is because everyone was eating the set. Uh, I'd give them, like, an Ace Cable Award, yeah. personally. I think it was passable enough. And it did seem, at least from the editing perspective, to uh, shed away some of the other teams. It was just like, I mean, they were able to play up their persona, right? That was one of the reasons why they got done in both times, is because they, like... Once they got really pressured, they really started bickering with each other, and that's when they really fell apart. And I think people who know that would just say, oh, yeah, they're fighting with each other. They don't know where they're going. Let's just not follow them. Again, I think they ran a really strong leg here, and I think the fact that they were able to get one over on people who have won seasons of reality shows based inherently in strategy is a, is a pretty good look on them. I don't know if it'll happen again, but they were at least able to do it once. I'm not... I'm not- totally sold on that having had any effect whatsoever on what anybody else was doing. I think with or without that performance, I think people would have missed that clue. Well, maybe it's because they said, oh my God, his wife is pregnant. We should, we should not watch. That's a very private moment. Yeah, well, his wife is nowhere near them. She's in California. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they just hear the words and they, you know, there are mothers out there. They, they feel naturally protective and so they decide to to turn around to not look at the activity. But yeah, I mean, is this also sort of a, a taste? I know Corinne and Eliza, before their brutal cast assessment, say, you know, the Afghanimals are sneaky. We need to look out for them. Do we think we're still going to get that side of them? We got that much more in season 23 than season 24. But do we think that's still in their DNA? Yeah, I think they will certainly deploy every trick in their at their disposal to get ahead. Um, but I do think that they're up against some people that 
have thought through the best ways to strategize pretty much every scenario on the entire CBS lineup. So they may be a little outclassed in the strategy department. They do have the advantage of having been on the show before and having deployed these things in real time so they know what works and doesn't. But I think they're going to have some pretty fine strategic minds working against them. Mm. So I guess on that note, so we have the Afghan animals climb the Japanese rocky steps to success here. They finish in for seven-day cruise to Tahiti. So, I mean, if I'm to read between the lines of what you're saying correctly, the Afghan animals ran a pretty damn good leg here, but that lead that they have from both a knowledge perspective and a performance perspective above some of those other teams, that gap might be closing short. Is that I right? I definitely think the gap is going to close. And we we spoke about the gap between the amazing race veterans and the other veterans and how we see that kind of narrowing. And I think it's going to be the Afghanimals are at the very far end of that gap. And I think everybody's going to be bunching together as if they are stuck waiting for a museum to open at the beginning of a leg. Mm -hmm. And you also never know, like, again, the Afghanimals were a fairly strong team again, going into it's Awesome when you finish in the top four both times in your first two seasons, especially two in a row. But it just always seemed like a series of tasks where it wasn't suited to them. And there were also not enough teams to, you know, to, to be able to uh, to get ahead of, to squeak ahead of. And so they end up in fourth place. I could see something similar happening here. But I mean, this is their strongest start so far. And I really have to commend that of them. Maybe pet ownership and child rearing has uh, allowed them to excel and come in with a you know a, a more sense of a personal life and so i'm really excited to see what the afghanimals are going to bring because on top of their racing expertise it seems like they're going to be bringing a lot of chaos and possibly some entertainment value along the way too yeah i i think this is the most i have ever liked them and i think i will continue to like them but hopefully it does not slide down from you. You're at the peak yeah, right now. I'm at the peak. I've grabbed my clue, and I hope it doesn't just slide right back down to the bottom. So Colin and Christy are in second. We haven't really talked that much about Colin and Christy outside the my blank is broken reference. What, what did you think about them, specifically their zen mentality that they now live? I feel like if we were, if it was 2004, and you and I were writing fan fiction about an all-star season of The Amazing Race, which seems like something you have probably done at some point, Mike. In fact, I know you have. Yep. Uh -huh. I feel like this exact scenario would have been in our fan fiction. It would have been Colin and Christy are back on the show because they were an iconic team, but they have learned from their mistakes and they've taken up yoga and meditation to calm their intensity. Reminds me of... I don't know why, but the movie Anger Management huh. starring Adam Sandler and Jack Nicholson, I believe Sandler at one point confronts his childhood bully played by John C. Riley, who is now a Buddhist monk. And it's very much that similar temperament of like, I have to find inner peace and that'll help me release any sort of uh, expectations I have about the world around me. I mean, they even admitted that, you know what, in the competition, it's still my turn on. I don't know if we're going to get to the same level as Colin from 2004. I'm sorry, everybody. I know we want to see it. I personally would love to see it. But I think the fact that he has grown up and is also is a father of two who does not necessarily want to show that to his kids 
on top of the fact that he seems to be more inwardly focused. Seems like we are in for a more calm Colin and Christy, a calm in and Christy, and at the same time, they are still performing to the, you know, uh, the standards that they were last time. Yeah, I do want to call out that establishing shot of their family playing in the backyard because it was deeply weird. <laughs> Can you describe what they were okay. doing? I can't remember. Uh, Colin and the two boys have a dog and they are playing with the dog in one corner of the yard. And the other corner of the yard, there's a tightrope and Christy is walking on the tightrope. <laughs> Wow, interesting. That seems like B-roll for a Home Depot commercial that never aired. This is aired. like back in the early days of The Amazing Race when they would do these establishing shots for the opening credits where you'd have the one part where they all like kind of turn around and cross their arms for the camera and then there would be like one wacky thing that the two of them are doing together to show their relationship and it'd be like, hey, you guys look like you might roller skate. Why don't we show the two of you roller skating? And and then they both, and then they both turn to the camera at the same yes, time. Yes, exactly. Well, and also just a tangent on a tangent uh, with the opening credits. Not much to speak about. The one thing I will note: uh, Did you see what Art and JJ did? Yeah, that was that was a little tryhard. <laughs> so Art shoots the finger guns at the camera, and JJ promptly slaps them down. And I'm assuming Art's arms cramp up, and he can't move them for a few days yep, after and that. And then he he falls over. <laughs> That's, yeah, that, actually, that would be the most entertaining piece of credit footage I would have ever seen if he just basically slaps his partner out of frame. Yeah, um, I did. I did like uh, Corinne and Eliza did the callback to the early seasons where they spun around in unison. Um, mm -hmm. I thought Brett and Chris were doing something very off brand for them where they like crossed their arms and glowered at the camera like they're on Ink Master. Yeah, or like they're uh, doing like college football introductions. Yeah, it was very which which would make sense for Chris. Very East West College Bowl. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, it was really weird to me when Rupert was just squirting a bunch of mayonnaise in his mouth. Did you save your mayonnaise? That's what he was asking the PA. Yeah, the opening credits. Um, you know, they had different landmarks of the world behind everybody, but for Rupert and Laura, it was just like a big lake of mayonnaise. <laughs> oh God. Oh, I can't wait until they redo the family edition. That's where their first pit stop is. It's Mayo Lake. Yeah, the the Mayo Marsh has been proficient in the state of Wisconsin for years at this point. Teams, the last team chicken may be eliminated. Uh, or thrown into the lake of mayonnaise. Oh, oh, dear God. Oh, that is either someone's dream or worse nightmare. Or it's a Japanese, uh, or it's a Japanese game show. Yeah, Lake, Lake of Mayonnaise after Is This Candy or Is This Not Candy? Um, this is the perfect 8 o'clock Thursday night lineup. Wow, but I think you want the you want the mayonnaise to be the lead-in. <laughs> yes, uh, just to sort of settle everyone's stomachs before you get into the main event of the hour. Uh, so Tyler and Corey come in third. Uh, we didn't talk much about the sisters, Riley, who came in fourth, but I did know, Jess, uh, that you wanted to pull the fact that Alyssa... Uh, maybe it's because she's able to because she's Rachel's sister, but she basically sends the entire episode zinging Rachel. Amazing Well, I liked that they literally said they were zinging each other. Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, you the zingbot, I think, sort of like it's very Borg-like, right? It affects, infects you with its zings, and you leave the Big Brother house and you infect others. Now that they brought Big Brother people onto the Amazing Race, it's now going to spread worldwide, quite literally. Yeah, do you even need Zingbot if you have Corinne? 
<laughs> That's true. She is, she's essentially like Zingbot like 5.0, the Zingbot where they were workshopping Zingbot in the lab and it finally became an, an actual person. No, no, Zingbot is Arnold Schwarzenegger and Corinne Kaplan is Robert Patrick. <laughs> Have you seen this boy? Because he is ugly. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy well uh i mean hopefully then if the if the next roadblock is a get ride a, a motorcycle then maybe corinne will really sort of that'll be her wheelhouse because this is not a great leg for the two of yeah, them um, the next leg there's a task involving a big lake of liquid nitrogen so it doesn't go too well oh and rupert was so close and oh if only it was mayonnaise oh. that would have been my my five hole <laughs> I don't even so, think a lake of mayonnaise uh, could save Rupert and Laura, Mike. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> no, that's very true. Uh, they probably wouldn't find it in the first place. Uh, so Team Fun comes in fifth. Uh, Victor and Nicole come in sixth. Do you have any thoughts about uh, Victor and Nicole? I know that that was the one that I think from our draft almost a year ago, Every a lot of people uh, gave us critiques about not picking the young lovers, especially now that they are engaged. You know, in a vacuum, not knowing anything about any of the teams, I think they would have gone much earlier. And I do think it was a misstep on all of our parts to not choose them for our teams because they are a demographic that historically has done very well on this show. And they look like, by all accounts, they are prepared. And I think once they get in a groove, we'll be seeing a lot of them. I mean, also, we, let's, we wanted to give Rob a fair shake at this it's draft. True. Let's just say it'll that. Be, it'll be so much fun if Rob has a team in this for a very long time, especially since Rob's going to be back on the show next week. And Yeah, now he has rooting interest. Yeah, now he has rooting interest. Although, the alternate universe where you and I are sitting here and talking about the fact that Rob and Steven went undrafted and how weird is that? Mm, that is interesting. Yeah, I, I, I guess we neglected to mention that as well, that Steven sort of uh, opened the can of mayonnaise, as it was, about the fact that him and Rob, at one point in time, were going to be on The Amazing Race. I mean, it seems like in the, this season on, they are doing a bungee jump, so I think they really dodged a bullet there. I hear those things cause CTE. Yeah, I, I've heard that, and I, I know that Steven is really trying to avoid those sorts of things to protect that precious brain of his. So, uh, Brett and Chris are seventh, uh, and I'm surprised that, you know, Brett didn't walk all the way up the stairs, say, what do I do now? And then I'll walk all the way back down and then back up again. Uh, Janelle and Brittany are eighth just because they, uh, they, I think they misunderstood the first word. They learned a hard lesson in the first rule of Amazing Race. Read your clue. I think they just misunderstood where the park was. Yeah, well, they aren't the only ones. <laughs> I mean, the Rupert and Laura were technically in the park. They were in the ballpark of the park. They just didn't necessarily. Yeah, look, let's can we talk about that? Because that was just. Well, Mike, oh did boy. you, did they're, you they're... Google Maps this? Because I Google Maps. I, yeah, please, please tell me what your findings were. Um, the park is about two blocks wide and six blocks long. I don't know what you do in an area that small for two hours that you can't find a television production setup. Uh, it was so shady when they did the the, the countdown clock at the bottom. Because you, you, I loved because it, it answered all of our questions. Like, wow, we've seen them do this a few times. How long were they there? And yeah, they were walking along. I mean, I guess compared to Central Park, it's probably like an eighth of the size of it for two hours straight, not able to find the giant ramp that would be their next road. Well, block. look, Mike, there's a park in my neighborhood, Fort Tryon Park. It's one of the bigger parks in the city. It's twice the size of this park. If they were filming something there, I would be able to find it in 10 minutes. 
Yeah, that's true. Though, I don't know. It seems like my theory is that from what they were searching for, I think Rupert thought the clue box was like a hidden immunity idol. There was one point where they were around this weird little shrine, and he was like, oh, let's get the flashlight out. We're going to need this. And Laura's like, it's not going to be hidden. The clues are out in the open. I think Rupert genuinely thought that much like the chocolate was hidden inside the shoe, all the clues were essentially tricks, and they had to dig deep to find them, much like he did with that octopus. Yeah, Rupert was a little fuzzy on a lot of Amazing Race concepts. It does not strike well, he's a very he's a He's a very fuzzy person in general with that uh, beard. That's fair point. Fair point. Um, but it did seem like he didn't think he was going to a task. He thought he was going to be looking for something. And, I mean, you do love the irony of the very first thing we see when we get to the park was Laura saying, yeah, we should go across the street. Rupert says, it's not across the street. And, of course, they finally go across the street. We even get, like, the little, it's not as blatant as, again, the Fran and Barry thing, but we do get a little spotlight from the editors in the distance of, yep, that is across the street. And it takes them basically, like, the length of a good Marvel movie for them to figure out what they did wrong. Yeah, it doesn't bode well for their future on this program. No. But they've already not. lasted like, again, longer than we thought they were going to, so let's give them props for that. That's true. Uh, should, should we talk about the uh, Corinne and Eliza, especially the... Uh, look, if Phil, uh, if, you, if your theory is true and Phil is having no fun with Rupert, he was having a lot of fun with Corinne and Eliza here. Well, I think he's probably aware that neither of them have a very good poker face. No. If you're going to mess no, no, with no. one team, that's the one to mess with. Yes, uh, though I would be, I would not have been surprised if they like cursed Phil out after that for trying to, to fake them out on it. Yeah, or at least got a really good zing in. Yeah. Did you also hear, I, a couple of patrons noticed this, I didn't notice this the first time, did Corinne and Eliza make a 20 reference they did. during the second roadblock? Yeah, they did. Uh, they did wow. a 20 impression. That's awesome. That's amazing. I mean, it makes sense given, you know, Eliza's link to the Twinnies, who I believe, I don't know if they're in the Wine and Cheese Alliance, but, you know, they're both from New Jersey, so I believe they're, you know, friendly. But, I mean, that's just, that's fantastic, especially considering that that's not from an Amazing Race team. It's akin to uh, the first episode of Amazing Race 4. I remember Amanda and Chris, who are not long for that world, but I believe Chris referred to Amanda as Flo, one of the winners of Season 3. So it's just those... We don't get a lot of, like, in-universe Amazing Race moments, and when we do, I, I just love it. Yeah, as long as it's not as blatant as, like, BJ and Tyler wearing t-shirts that said Bowling Moms. Yeah, which, again, uh, I don't know. I guess even that, though, is more transparent than uh, Eat, Pray, Race, or whatever Corinne and Eliza are wearing. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I, want, I want someone to go on record and explain what this means, because it's going to bug me. So, I guess we should talk about uh, Art and JJ... They give up. Art is uh, is cramping up majorly. They I I know you mentioned uh, another team beforehand, but this is giving me shades of the Pizza Bros from Colin and Chrissy's original season, season five, the first team to quit the race. Wow, you know I vaguely remember that, but yeah, um, uh, it's been a long time since we've had something like that happen. Yeah, it was. I think the situation was like. I remember one of them just like really hurt their legs and the other one was participating in a roadblock in Egypt where they had to like dig for a scarab. And I remember the other one just like sitting in a lifeguard chair. And that was the first time Phil ever went off the mat to eliminate somebody because they were in, in dead last. The night was coming. It feels like, all right, guys, let's just let's just call it here. And 
it's fine. They were pretty big a-holes in that season. But that that's the first thing I think of when I think of, like, being medically unable to continue the Wasn't race. Isn't it weird that Phil didn't field Eliminate Art and JJ? Because it really, he seems a lot quicker on the trigger when it comes to that sort of thing now. Well, I wonder if he was like, I have to go down all those stairs. Like, it'd be much easier to have the man whose legs cramped up walk up all those stairs and come to me. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we'll see. They might have finished even later than they were supposed to just because of poor Art getting up those stairs. But so Art and JJ, they're they're trying to, you know, they, t- they take the penalty and they hope like, OK, there still might be a team behind us. In come Rupert and Laura. They find they're looking for a good grace here. And Rupert does it. And Rupert, Rupert has his own sort of uh, mantra going through his head as he decides to uh, take this in. I don't think we'd ever see Rupert in a unitard in almost 20 years of knowing well, have him. Have you ever seen so Rupert glad. in anything that was not tie-dye? That's very true. Tie-dye and wet jeans are really his uh, usual outfit, even in his day-to-day. But this is what the unitard-clad Rupert was thinking to pump himself up. I was telling myself, you're going to run up the darn thing. You're running up the thing. You're running up the thing. I was not going to let a mountain beat me. That's such a Rupert tweet in human Rupert form. Yeah, only Rupert could pull off the phrase, I was not going to let a mountain beat me, because it sounds so ridiculous, but also to quote one of his fellow All-Stars castaways, Hemingway-esque, the classic battle of man versus mountain. It's true, man versus inflatable slip and slide mountain. Yeah, exactly. And thankfully, Rupert won that battle, which not all of them did. So, you know what? It claimed one victim that day. It's true. It's true. Mountain Mountain won Amazing Racers 10. 10. <laughs> it's, it's not a great score. Great. But at least, at least got it. At least it was up there there. on the board. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, Mike, do we want to take a couple of questions from the Twitterers? We could be here all night. We've already talked this up to the tune of 90 minutes but i do know that my twitter is still blowing up more than 24 hours later so i know we got a lot of great questions so if we can cherry pick a couple that would be great sure this is let's let's take one from a newbie here this is a question from jennifer jones is this season's first episode a representative of most season starting episode or is this specific to returnee cast so again you brought this up a bit before but I'll also uh, combine it a bit with our beloved listener Hot Nuts question. <laughs> a, is this a typical premiere? B, is this your favorite premiere, at least in recent memory? It may be my favorite in recent memory. Um, but I would say that this is very much, I would almost call this like a platonic ideal of opening legs. Because this was really, we got to see everybody. We got a little taste of what they are all like, and then we told a story. And a lot of times there's so much chaos in the opening leg that you don't see certain teams at all. And I feel like we had a couple of teams that really did some monumentally boneheaded things that made us pay attention, but everybody got their moment in the sun. Yeah, or in the moon, I guess, since it all took place at night. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. I think maybe, again, because I come in knowing these personalities, I'm totally fine with, you know, your team funds and your Colin and Christie not getting as much exposure as some of these other teams. But it really was entertaining to see some of these teams really struggle. And it really ran the gamut between, like, I mean, and unfortunately does not seem as Corinne and Rupert sort of voice to each other that Survivor is doing a great job representing 
thus far, but it provided some great entertainment. And we had, for the people who want the good racing, we had the good racing. For people who wanted the train wreck of it all, we had the bad racing. There really was a lot of everything in this episode, and that's all you can hope for in an amazing race premiere. So I really enjoyed this. You know, I really liked the 29 premiere as well, just with how they introduced everybody. But outside of that, this might be my favorite premiere in a while, too. Yeah, and I think we have a lot of people in our podcast orbit who are just tuning into The Amazing Race for the first time. And I'm just relieved that it was a good episode and it was a good introduction. Yeah. Speaking of that, so Derek tweeted at us about the ratings from last night. I mean, we'll get a bit to uh, RHAP Nielsen in it, but it's a, a 1.26 share, 5.8 million total viewers. And he said, is this enough to get us a false season? I know that Phil spoke on both of our interviews with him about, you know, the upcoming season of The Amazing Race. I know it's really tough to gauge off of one episode, but let's let's gauge away what do you think at this point the chances are of Amazing Race coming back for season 32, whether it be in the fall or in the future? Well, it did win its time slot, so that's good. But it's yeah. fewer than we got for the previous season premieres, so that is worrying. But they've hung on for a long time. I think this is a tenacious show. We may have to wait a while to get the next season, but it may end up being a mid-season replacement. We might be rooting for a Viva Laughlin scenario here. but. <laughs> It does seem like it's a strong start, and if it gets better, we may pull more people in, and people may be attracted to the curiosity of having other reality contestants, and maybe they're waiting around to see if it's any good, and if it is any good, we could be looking at a good, you know, a good boost for the, for the show. Yeah, I'm going to remain optimistic about it as well. You know, 5.8 is higher than, like, the last three double episodes of season thirty. And all of season 29, which I believe had that Thursday at nine time slot. I think it's a couple of contributors. The fact that it's on at nine is not as conducive as the eight o'clock. It did get bumped up a month. And I know they really promoted the crap out of this and did a great job at it. But, you know, I think it's it's harder to premiere a show on April 17th on a broadcast network than it is on like mid-January, like season 30. So I think it's tough to compare between seasons. Honestly, I think... CBS has a fondness for Amazing Race where it's just like, we know we can basically put it in anywhere we need to. It's essentially like, a, you know, the, the part that can fit any sort of machine wherever you want it to be. So maybe I'm hopefully I'm not jinxing it too much. Hopefully I'm not invoking too much of Kirk Clark here, especially considering the show that got shelved in honor yeah. of this. But I, I do think that this is good so far. I'm excited for this season. And I think this means that I don't know if we'll see it in the fall or as another mid-season replacement in the winter or in the spring, but I, I'm hopeful we get 32 of The Amazing Race. Yeah, yes, Kirk Clark, you're not allowed to come on here and recap The Amazing Race. I don't want that bad juju. Uh, so here's a question from Rich, uh, who says, sorry, just trying to find it. Yes, are Rupert and Laura the most incompetent team we've ever seen run the race? Oh, if only. Just you... <laughs> Yes, you are a survivor historian. Or you're an amazing race historian as well. G give me your thoughts. Or were there other teams off the top of your head that compared to what Rupert and Laura did in this first leg? We've had a lot of pretty boneheaded teams, especially in the early legs. And it's hard to tell. Like, I think we could assemble an all-star cast of people that have made some ridiculous moves. But I would say Rupert and Laura are probably bottom five. I mean, I would say... 
if you put Lo- Roller and Rupert up against the gutsy grannies oh, from season boy. two, it's really a race to the bottom, unfortunately. That is a good point. I The gutsy grannies might be our mark to beat. Yeah, listen, if Rupert and Laura oversleep their alarm on the pit stop, then we'll know they've reached granny level. But for right now, they're hovering above that. Yeah, or if they if they go from South America to South Africa via London. Yes, exactly. Uh, final thing I want to ask, because this segues really nicely into the this season on supercut that we got on the end of it. I know people don't want to watch that for fear of spoilers. We are going to talk about something that got revealed. So if you don't want to speak about that uh, or hear about that, skip ahead about two minutes or so. But I believe Caitlin Ash asked, do you see a Corinne slash Eliza, Corey Tyler and Team Fun Alliance in our future? Or am I just creating the best fanfic ever? No harm in creating fanfic, Caitlin. Trust me. But on that note, I want to talk a bit about, as what we alluded to before, this U-turn vote and whether or not coalitions like what Caitlin may or may not be seeing, will that bear weight at a certain point in time? Well, it's interesting. I think a lot depends on how they roll this out. And it looks like everybody knows about it ahead of time. It looks like Phil is telling them in person that this vote is going to happen, which opens up some possibility for people to collaborate. And I think the only other time I've seen this vote happen is in my beloved Amazing Race Australia season two, mm-hmm. where I don't believe it was really introduced to anybody with any sort of collaborative intent. It was kind of a secret ballot where you went and got your clue at the beginning of the leg and it said, oh, also, by the way, please cast your vote for who you want to be U-turned. And people didn't really have a chance to say, oh, I think we should U-turn these guys. But it was also kind of obvious in that instance who they should U-turn, and they did. So this may open up some possibility to do some alliance making a la Survivor or Big Brother. And I think it will be interesting to see how much time they get to talk about that and how they're actually made to cast the vote. Yeah, the uh, the little snarky conversation between Janelle and Phil where she said, oh, you know, if only we could vote them out. And he says, wrong show. It's actually those seeds of bore fruit here. I'm super interested by it. I think it totally makes sense to be like, hey, we brought you guys from other shows on The Amazing Race. Let's bring The Amazing Race to some of your shows and see how you handle this voting construct. The open forum idea is really interesting because, I mean, outside of what we've been seeing in Tribal Council as of late, those shows all function from private voting constructs. We're not really, to your point, saying out in the open, hey, we want to target this team. Even something like the U-turn, you don't do while the person's next to you. You just put your little picture in the corner, and that only happens sometimes. That can really cut in both directions. Maybe we'll have teams be super brazen and really be vocal in the moment about what to do. I think you could look at like Corinne and Eliza and the Riley sisters as big examples of that. Or it could be, I don't want to say anything because I don't want to target on my back that people will know it was me who said it. Let me just sheepishly go along with the numbers. So it really has the potential to go either way. But I'm always game to shake things up. Uh, You know, this was also the point in time when we heard about the partner swap. We'll be interested to see if we get that this season or if this replaces it. Yeah, we'll we'll see. I think... I'm excited to see them trying out new twists, and I'm the only person in the world who's excited to see the head-to-head come back. So I think there's some ways to keep the game fresh, and I like that they're trying out new things even 31 seasons in. Including this casting. Again, I'll say that I think this is a really entertaining 
group of people, especially the 10 teams that are left as well. I mean, this is a fantastic sandwich. All we needed was just a little dollop of mayo, and that just made everything pop even more. Well, did you save your mayo, Mike? Oh, boy. I think so. I think so. I didn't save mine. I ate all of it. Oh, darn. Well, you got to save it for next week, because we uh, we are continuing on with the shindig as we bring Rob Cesarino aboard along with us to continue down this crazy, crazy season and assuming what's to come next week with this group of teams. I can guarantee you that Rob will not let us talk about condiments for half as long as we did. So I guess I'm <laughs> I guess I'm glad that he was in transit from Philly today and could not join us tonight. But when he's back next week, you know, it's going to be a whole different ballgame. Absolutely. And I'm assuming that he was promptly guided from the plane to the bus to the Uber home in true Amazing Race fashion. Yeah, I, w- I would think so. But I, I do not know if there were any chocolate shoes waiting for him to snack on when he got home. Hopefully, hopefully we'll stay tuned to his Instagram to see. I don't think he would like it as someone who is not a huge Akiva Winninger says he's not a huge fan of food. I would think chocolate shoes would even be the bottom of that list. It's the gutsy grannies of food for Rob. It's, it's true. I, I think that was a roadblock that Stephen would have taken. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But then we would have gotten Rob in the unitard, so. Win-win. Win-win. We're writing our own fan fiction here, Mike. So, um, Mike Bloom, thank you very much for engaging in this level of silliness with me. I think we have gone on for twice as long as the actual length of the episode, talking about everything that happened in the episode. And so we are excited to continue the conversation. Uh, We are happy to engage with you on all of the social medias. You can tweet at me at Haymaker Hattie. You can reach me at a Mike Bloom type. I will be continuing my exit press for The Amazing Race 31 this season. At this point in time, hopefully I'll have my interview with Art and JJ up. I talked about a couple other things uh, in addition to what they talked about before with the surprisingly strategic choice to take the penalty, what was going on through Art's mind, etc. Really interesting conversation. Cannot wait to continue those all season long. And if you uh, if you missed it at this point, uh, you guys had a great interview with Phil a few days ago. I also talked with Phil, and he gave his sort of uh, cast assessment on each of the teams as well. Uh, It's always fun to read up and see how those compare to even how it delivered in the first episode. And Jess, this is not going to be the last time you and I are going to be talking together this week. No, that is true, Mike. Uh, We will also be breaking down everything that happened on the season finale of Star Trek Discovery and look for that to drop into your feeds sometime on Sunday or Monday. Yes, and I'll also be doing the RHAP B&B for this week with a double boot on Survivor. Liana and I will be joined by Peridium, who also just put out three videos on his own YouTube channel that introduced people, gave, gave sort of the crash course of three of the Amazing Race teams this season. They were both, or they were all excellent as always, doing the Drag Race coverage as well. But uh, I, I think a reason why we went on for so long, and it's not just because we are gregarious AF, Jess, is because it's so much fun to have the Erase back, especially with this cast. I can't wait to keep talking about it more with you and Rob this season. Yeah, you know, when I found out it was being pushed up a month, I grumbled about it for a while because I thought I was going to have a month where I didn't have any podcasts at all. But man, the second it was on, it was like, I remember what I love about this, and I missed it so much, and I don't know, I don't know if I knew how much I needed it in my life. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, make, be sure you... This is not the end of the podcast. Uh, you can listen to Taryn's interview with uh, Art and JJ afterwards as well. So make sure you uh, don't throw your earbuds out of your ears as soon as we say bye here. Yeah, so with all that, uh, thanks everybody for tuning in. Hope we'll hear from you on the various social media channels. And now we're going to throw it to Taryn. 
Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rob Has a Podcast. I'm your host, Taryn Armstrong, filling in today for Rob. He is on a flight back home at the moment. So I will be talking to the first team eliminated from the amazing race here today. Uh, I apologize that Rob is not here for you, but I will do my best to fill in and uh, and ask this team about everything that happened here and, and what went wrong and, and really like what their thoughts are on this because uh, the team we're about to talk to here, they are Art and JJ and... They had a very successful run of it there in season 20. They never went below fourth place. Uh, they only got one fourth place finish. The rest were top three every single leg of the race. They looked like they might win the whole thing. And then right at the end, they, uh, they came up in second place and. In the episode, it showed that they were, uh, they were upset by this, that they were, you know, a competitive team. They didn't really talk about this for a while. So to go out first must be a big blow. Uh, so I'm definitely curious to see how they're handling it and, uh, and what this was like, what went wrong here. So without any further ado, let's get into it and talk to Art and JJ. Hey guys, so the first thing I want to know from you is what went wrong here? You were uh, struggling to get up that that slippery slope uh, and that ultimately seemed to cause your demise. What was going on there? It was raining when we were there and started climbing up that, that jumpy thing and I don't know, I probably tried to scale it about 20 to 30 times and then my legs just gave out. I mean, I just they started cramping up and it got to a point where I couldn't walk, I couldn't stand up and they only showed a couple seconds of it, but I mean, my legs were, they were done, they were smoked. It was literally a perfect storm of everything going bad that went bad. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Uh, what was it about the, uh, the, the slippery slope there that gave you so much trouble? So you had to go put on the leotard thing, right? So you're wearing that leotard thing and... and I when I got in, I walked up, saw the thing. I'm like, all right, this will be no problem. I'll go in there. So I came out of the changing tent, and there was this there was this big open field, big old, and I just ran straight through the field. It was a it was a muddy field, not thinking anything about the fact that I needed to stay dry or anything to climb this thing. So, but my legs just they just literally cramped up to the point where I couldn't move. Yeah, you uh, you guys had an incredible amount of success your last time around. Uh, how disappointing was it to go out so early this time? It was uh, it was the worst case scenario that that we were actually living in, and and it was horrible. We actually when we got eliminated and we were on uh, you know the next day, we were just what silence, right? We were just shocked. Yeah, could not believe. We literally, we're not arrogant and not an arrogant way that, oh, yeah, we're, we should have won every leg. I mean, that's ridiculous. There's really smart, capable people on the race, but we really believe that we would go far and not win it. So when this, everything went wrong day happened on the first leg, it, it was shocking to us. We just, we just, it, it, it was hard. It took, I don't know about you, Art, but it took me a long time, even going home thinking, what just happened? Did this really just happen? Did I just go on the amazing race after waiting seven years and get bumped out the first leg? There's no way uh, this truly actually happened to us, but it did. And, uh, and, the way, and the way I think that we, the way that we conduct ourselves in our job, in our lives and stuff, we always have a contingency. I mean, you always have, you know, you're always planning. You're one, two, three steps ahead of always, you're, you just, that's just the way we have to conduct business. And the fact that that happened, I can pretty much absolutely guarantee you that that was not in our contingency. That that was never even a thought in our mind that we were going to be the first team eliminated. 
And when it happened, it was, it was, it was an absolute shock. Like what in the world, how did this happen? What, what, it, it's still, it's kind of like an unbelievable scenario that happened and it did. And maybe the fact that we didn't plan for that contingency, you know, maybe that's why it happened. I don't know. I don't know. But it just, it was, it was not definitely not in our plan to be eliminated. Yeah. We might've come last or something or, or towards the back of a pack or something, but we never in, in a million years thought that we were going to end up getting eliminated in the first leg. Yeah. It was, uh, it was mentioned on the show that you guys uh, had a tough time sort of dealing with the loss from the last time that you hadn't really talked about it in a lot of years. Uh, do you think this one is going to be more difficult to get over or is it going to be maybe a little bit easier because you weren't as close this time? No, I think, I mean, it's still, you know, I, we were asked. We were asked during our exit interviews. You know, which one's worse, uh, coming in second or being eliminated first? And after dealing with it, I think the being eliminated first part is probably worse. And it, it, it's not so much the fact that you're being that you're eliminated first. For me, it was, and like JJ has said, is that you know it's the experience of the race. It's the experience of going to different places and seeing different things and the relationships that you build with the people that you're competing against. I mean. I'm still really good friends with people that were castmates, you know, seven years ago, and we still stay in touch and we still talk and, and, and it just, it, it's, it's, it's a camaraderie that you build with those people. And so for me, that's the disappointing part. Yeah, we got eliminated first, but it was all the other relationships that we could have built and established and, and, and gone through with other racers and the survivor people and the big brother people. Cause I'm sure they're absolutely awesome people to get to know. And it would have just been great to expand that, you know, that friendship base. Cause they're, they're really, they're really cool, neat people that have gone through experiences. And I kind of wanted to get to know racers from previous seasons to see how their experiences were on their races when they went through them, you know, the Afghanimals and Team Fun and Christy and Colin and just, just that whole thing. I mean, it was just because you've all experienced it and everybody has different experiences. So that's to me was the biggest disappointment. Yeah. You, uh, you had raced, raced with, uh, with Rachel before. Uh, what was it like seeing her again? Well, at first, Art, would you say is a little uncomfortable? Cause I think. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> a little bit uncomfortable. Cause I think she, and rightfully so, you know, you get separated from each other, you don't see each other, and so you just fall back on what was last said about you. But I find Rachel to be a very wonderful lady. Like she's a mom now, and um, and so the, it was a little, little uncomfortable at first. But I didn't have, we didn't have any animosity toward her, um, you know. But like I told other people, I mean, if you want really, really good reality TV. You take the Riley sisters and you drop them right in the middle of whatever's going on, and you got great TV right away. So um, I have mad respect for her. Uh, three times on Amazing Race, she's run like thirty something legs. Um, so I, I think she, I think I think she's highly underrated intellectually and highly inter- underrated in, in her strategic plan and the way she does things. I, so I have mad respect for her. Yeah. I mean, they're both, you know, you put them both together and it was, uh, it's good. I mean, Rachel's, she doesn't have a mean bone in her body. She's just, she's just good TV. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of like the Lucille Ball of her generation, I guess, if anybody knows who that is. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so, uh, so tell me about the the moment that you decided to uh, to quit the the challenge there, uh, because you guys, if I'm if I'm correct here, I'm pretty sure you guys have never finished in any place below fourth, uh, you or you hadn't before this this thing. So this is like this is very much a new experience for you, not being able to complete this challenge and, and having to uh, to quit it in the way that you did in the very first leg. What was that moment like? Were you, were you already defeated? Did you still have hope? Uh, like, how did you come to it uh, what was it like well i i'm a super fan so i've seen every episode so i art was having struggle and then got to a point where i saw his path and he just said i'm never gonna be able to do this and i really believe that he was never gonna be able to do it so i had to start thinking okay what what is going on right now in the race and what are my options what can we do and I had, I had I thought of three things immediately, and I told Art, we need to take the penalty, the four-hour penalty, because that's our only way. That's our only way out of this mess. And I thought, maybe there's a team behind us, which we kind of figured out after all this, that there was a team behind us. They would have to go through, and maybe because it was raining and misting, maybe they'll have the same trouble, and we'll actually get out of here in four hours before they do. Um, the second thing was they told us there was head-to-head, so I figured, hey, let's let's get out of here. That's another option. We get to the head-to-head where Art's legs will be healed and we'll we'll win the head-to-head. Or my last one was that hey, maybe this is a non-elimination. They've only had one other time in the in the history of Major Race to have one the, the first leg is non-elimination. Maybe we just eat this four hours, bro. Get to the ending and get to a new day, and we'll start over with a four-hour time block. We'll make that up and be back in the race. And none of that happened. But it was a strategic move on our part that here's our options. This is this is what you get to choose from. Let's not hem and haw anymore. Let's make our decision and let's roll with it. And that's what we did. So um, everyone asked, in hindsight, would you do it again? I don't think we had an option. Art was adamant that this is, I'm not going to get up there. I saw his calves twitching and, and the pain he was in. It just wasn't going to happen. So, um, yeah, that, that's how we all came about doing that. And you're right. It's very surreal. The whole thing, while, while transpiring, was surreal because Art and I never been. We'd always been in the front, the front of the pack, front of the pack. And we had really, really strong racers on season 20. And we found ourselves in the front the whole time and, and find ourselves in the back and end was, we couldn't believe it. It was, we were shocked. And not in an arrogant way, like we're so great, but we just really believed that we were going to kind of continue on how we did season 20. And, and it just was one of those days that was horrible and it happened to be in the beginning of the race. And now we got to live with it. And the thing too is, it you know, again, they didn't show any of that stuff. But I think even if we would have completed that thing, I mean, it took me almost three days to get up and start walking again. My legs were that bad. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't walk. I mean, it was literally, I felt like an old man. I mean, it was, I, it was one of the most painful things that I've ever experienced ever. You know, other than like being in a crash or getting surgery or something where you're laid up. But I mean, I literally just. I could not move. I couldn't walk. I couldn't even go to the bathroom. They hurt so bad. So I was like, man, I don't even know if we would have made this thing, how I would have even been able to do the next two, three days of everything that was going on, still being able to travel. I mean, I, 
I don't know. I mean, it's just it's, it's a weird thing. It's odd. It, it's kind of hard to explain. Yeah. Well, uh, sorry to see you guys leave so early, but uh, thanks for talking to me. So there you go. That was Art and JJ. They seem like great guys. Uh, definitely have a, a positive attitude about the other teams. And, uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate when you see, when, when a team that has so much success and you know they're capable of so much more, uh, you know, that sometimes you just get unlucky in the race and, uh, and things just don't go your way, which seems to be the, uh, the case here for Art and JJ. But I'm sure we're going to have a great season ahead of us. Uh, looking forward to listening myself to Rob conduct the uh, the other exit interviews with all of these other great teams uh, so many so many great people to talk to so uh, looking forward to all of that make sure you tune into all of the amazing race coverage if you uh, if you want to hear more of my voice you can listen to the big brother big brother coverage that we do on Rob as a podcast and of course there's an amazing survivor season going on lots to listen to if you're interested in all of that you can find me on Twitter if you uh, if you want to at Armstrong Taryn and uh yeah thank you so much for for joining me uh again i i apologize if uh, if there are any audio issues or uh, or internet issues i am also still on the road but uh you know we we do our best here and uh, i had a lot of fun I, I was really honored that uh that rob asked me to to do this uh for him so uh thank you so much for for hearing me out and uh i'll see you next time or at least rob will <laughs> <laughs> 